Amen. Well, if you have your Bible, open up to the letter of Philippians. This is the final sermon in this series through the letter of the Philippians, or to the Philippians, called Citizen, which seems like a pretty timely series, seeing as we hear a lot about citizenship over the last seven to eight months. A citizen, by definition, is a person who legally belongs to a country and really has the rights and protections of that country. Citizens typically adopt the culture and the practices of said country or kingdom, whatever one they belong to. So where we come from is a very powerful influence in our life. It has the power to really form aspects of our worldview, shape our perspectives, dictate our opportunities, even define some aspects of our identity. Now every Christian possesses maybe dual citizenship, could be said. We are citizens of a country on earth. In our case, we are citizens of the United States of America. And we are citizens of a better country in heaven, of which all Christians in every nation are a part of. And as we heavenly citizens await the return of our King to one day experience the fullness of that citizenship, we will endure difficult things, difficult circumstances, hardships, suffering, even threats to our earthly citizenship. And all these things, whether it be difficulties or threats or hardships, they can cause us to forget our true citizenship, our heavenly citizenship. When life becomes hellish, and it either has, is, or will for us, when it becomes hellish, we can be tempted to seek meaning, seek relief, even seek salvation in other saviors to save us from the hell that we find ourselves in. And some of those saviors are sinful people, of which there's no other kind. Some of those things are worldly pleasures. We easily make idols and saviors out of those. Others, at times, are even religious passions or theological positions. And what I've found, or at least learned in my own life and observed in the life of others, is that true suffering and hardship and difficulty tends to expose the gods that people truly worship, despite the gods that they might usually confess. But certain of his heavenly citizenship, the Apostle Paul calls us to a very different kind of response in the midst of difficulty. So writing from Rome where he is unjustly imprisoned for the cause of Christ, he tells the Philippians not only that he rejoices in his suffering, but that he looks forward with great anticipation to his death. That's a perspective that we perhaps quickly read over, but if you think about it, you go, wow, I'm not sure I approach my suffering or look to my death that way. Paul is not some sort of weird spiritual masochist. On the contrary, he knows something quite deeply. It's a truth that I've said several times throughout this series, and that is this, that he lives in the strong and unshakable kingdom of of God, and that the kingdom is never, ever, ever in trouble, so neither is he. That is why he can approach it that way. 
Essentially, Paul is actively living out his heavenly citizenship, and he is calling the Philippians to do the same. And though he calls the church to various ways to live that out, sometimes he says you are to pursue unity. You are to practice humility. You are to pray your anxiety. I think the letter to the Philippians perhaps is best characterized as a call of where to find joy. So our text this morning is in Philippians 4, verses 14 to 23. And these are the last verses of the letter. And because they're very personal words, at the end of what seems like a very personal letter, we would easily overlook them. Ignore them as, oh, it's insignificant. He's just closing his letter. Let's move on. But I think they actually provide us some deep insight into where heavenly citizens do actually find their supreme joy. And it's a place that we aren't often willing to look in the compassionate service and sacrifice to others. Let's read Philippians 4, beginning in verse 14, and read to the end. It says this, Yet it was kind of you to share my trouble. And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts that you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brothers who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. So Paul begins to conclude his letter with a statement that might be worthy of a sermon of its own. And that is this. It was kind of you to share my trouble. The Philippians have done more than just share their concern about Paul's suffering Going beyond passive acknowledgement, they didn't just promise to pray for him or send him good thoughts. They have shown Paul a great kindness by actually getting personally involved, by putting some skin in the game. The words, share my trouble, can actually literally mean they have chosen to participate in sort of a fellowship of affliction. Not many of us would sign up to be part of a fellowship of affliction. That doesn't sound very inviting. Most of us naturally avoid such opportunities for two reasons. One, we deem that trouble to not be our responsibility. That's not in my area of concern. I don't need to take care of that. The other is we don't share trouble because we have so many responsibilities of our own, we're already feeling overburdened. In other words... We won't suffer if we don't have to. We won't suffer if we can avoid it almost at any cost. The Philippians, however, have chosen to suffer even when they don't have to. To share someone else's trouble. 
There's a very countercultural, which means very different than the world might approach or desire, and something very counterintuitive, something almost different than our own flesh would want. There's a compassion that has risen up in the Philippians, a desire to help because they feel in the deepest way as if the need is their own need. This compassion can only come from the spirit and mind of Christ. I would argue compassion is the very characteristic that perhaps most dominates Christ and perhaps best describes the heart of God. I love how Donald Gray expresses it. He says, Jesus reveals in an exceptionally, in an exceptionally human life what it is to live a divine life, a compassionate life. Compassion. Heavenly citizens are to be characterized by compassion. They are to be the most compassionate people because of how much compassion the Lord has shown them. But in today's world, I would argue that a growing number of people, including Christians, are not characterized most by compassion, but most often by criticism. People are very critical today. And although they would call it constructively critical, they're certainly not compassionate. And I would argue that we use criticism as an excuse to basically uh, justify our lack of compassion. Here's what I mean. Our refusal to share in the trouble of others is often the result of being critical of that person in trouble. We'll see the person and think to ourselves, well, you shouldn't be in that situation. Or if you'd done X, Y, and Z, you wouldn't be in this situation. We're critical. Now, many of us go, well, that's not me. Consider what it experience for you is like when you see someone who is begging on the corner. I'm seeing a growing number of people doing that in our community, Snohomish, Lake Stevens. And there are sometimes you see a person there that's been there for literally five years. Didn't I see that guy? You tell me in five years you couldn't get a job. Where'd you get that new coat? Why do you have such nice shoes? I'm sure none of those thoughts ever go into your mind. I just wonder sometimes why our first thought isn't compassion. I think it's often criticism. We are to be compassionate. In his letter to the Galatians, Paul said it this way. He said, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something and he is nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one test his own work and when and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor, for each will have to bear his own load. Burdens and loads. The Bible says a lot, particularly in Galatians, about burdens and loads. Burdens are those things we should share. Loads are those things that we are individually, personally responsible for to carry ourselves. I wonder if in order to avoid sharing the burden of others, we're tempted to categorize, categorize everything as a load. Oh, that's not something I need to share. That's something you're responsible to do. Well, that's not how Christ approached it. And heavenly citizens are to follow the example in the way of Christ, choosing to share, if you will, 
another's burden. And in doing so, mysteriously, shockingly, finding joy. Finding joy. Now this reminded me of a poem, because I'm an English teacher in a pastor's body, by Edwin Arlington Robinson. I'm sure if you remember back to your wonderful English class days of junior high and high school, you'd remember this poem. Maybe not. Edwin Arlington Robinson wrote lots of poems. A lot of them are about people. Made up people. This one is called Cliff Klingenhagen. It's probably the only thing you'll remember about this poem, but that's fine. Follow along if you would. It's short. Cliff Klingenhagen had me in to dine with him one day, and after soup and meat and all the other things there were to eat, Cliff took two glasses and filled one with wine and one with wormwood. Then, without a sign for me to choose at all, he took the draught of bitterness himself and lightly quaffed it off and said the other one was mine. And when I asked him what the devil he meant by doing that, he only looked at me and smiled and said it was a way of his. And though I know the fellow I have spent long time a-wondering when I shall be as happy as Cliff Klingenhagen is. Short, but I think very powerful little poem. Cliff Klingenhagen. He says it was a way of his. Cliff Klingenhagen found joy in selflessness. Even suffering. And in his joy, he was led to take the bitterness himself that his guest might be blessed. I would argue the way of the heavenly citizen is the way of Cliff Klingenhagen because it's the way of Christ. Do you realize that Christ's pursuit of joy led him to endure the cross that others might be blessed? That's why he did it. For joy. And he did more than share our trouble. He actually took on all of our trouble, drinking the full cup of wrath that was reserved for us and deserved by us. And He is the one who lived a human life. He is the one who was tempted and endured every suffering that we might endure ourselves and yet without sin. He knows our troubles like a doctor who's had the same disease. And therefore, He can empathize like no one else can. He is characterized by compassion. So it follows that our capacity, your capacity, my capacity for compassion to share the burden, to, to share the trouble of others is directly related to our connection with Christ. And our generosity is actually directly related to the depth of compassion we have. Paul writes about the Philippian generosity that came from this heart of compassion that was given him, I believe, through the mind of Christ. Verse 15 says, And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the Gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership in, with me in giving and receiving except you only. And even in Thessalonica, 
You sent me help for my needs once and again. Paul is grateful for the commitment and the generosity of the Philippian church to support his ministry as he worked his way through Macedonia. For a time, they were the only church to partner with him. The only one who supported him. But the Philippians desired, out of concern and love and compassion towards Paul, to give, and even more perhaps, out of compassion for those that Paul would reach. They didn't give in order to get something. They didn't give in order to earn something. They didn't give in order to prove something. They gave because they were convinced they had already received everything there was to receive, to get. And so it's a stretch for us. It might be a stretch for us to be generous one big time. Perhaps you've had that experience in your life where where you exercised a radical amount of generosity of your time or your talent or your treasure. And that's a good thing. But I argue it's nothing in compared to the sacrifice of continual, regular, devoted, long-term generosity and support. A heavenly citizen is not generous only because they feel another person's momentary pain or suffering. They're generous also because they view everything they have, all of their stuff, even their time and their talents and their treasure, completely differently. You see, God was really the first and only giver. And by that I mean God created everything out of nothing. So anything there is to give is God's and is first given by God. He is really the only true giver. At best, we are stewards and managers of His stuff. At worst, we're re-gifters. We're perpetual re-gifters of the divine gifts given from the Father. And so as heavenly citizens, the Philippians didn't just merely send Paul a one-time love gift which is, again, not a bad thing. But they supported him regularly, faithfully, generously in this long-term partnership. They were sacrificially generous. But for some reason, they don't seem to have experienced it as sacrifice. I don't know if you've ever had that experience where on paper whether it be the clock or the checkbook, you're like, man, this doesn't make sense. This is a pretty major sacrifice. But it doesn't feel like it because of the joy that comes from it. They seem to have found joy in this kind of giving again and again and again. Which is one of the themes of this letter. It's just this long-term stain this long-term, long obedience in the same direction. We are a culture that shifts and changes so quickly that it's becoming rare, rare to see this long-term commitment to anything. From Paul's perspective as well, it wasn't about the gift. It wasn't about the shape of the gift, the size of the gift, the nature of the gift. 
He didn't care about that. He has already said that he had learned the secret of contentment. Whether he is prosperous or whether he's impoverished, he's content because his citizenship, his true identity was not dependent upon whether many people supported him or no people supported him or the amount people supported him. And this is why Paul praises their generosity, not because of the actual amount. He praises it because he values the blessing that comes to them because of their generosity. That's what he says in verse 17. Not that I seek the gift. He didn't ask for it. He didn't command it. He didn't encourage it or hint about it. I could really use your help. He didn't seek it at all. He says, I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. He describes their generosity as worship. Their giving as worship. Their gift as given, offered to God, not to Paul. Almost shockingly, he uses the same language. Offering and sacrifice for an aroma to God to describe the cross of Christ in the letter of the Ephesians. So this is Christ-like giving. And Christ-like giving blesses the giver as much as it does the receiver because it is an act of worship that produces fruit. And you go, what fruit is it? It's not more prosperity. That's what many false gospels are teaching today. If you give, the Lord will give back. If you sow a seed, you'll reap a harvest. All these ways. This is not what Paul says. The fruit he speaks of is not a greater prosperity. On the contrary, it is the fruit of delight in God's delight in your giving. It is the delight in God's delight. Now you're like, is that really better than a bunch of money? Yes! It is a delight that is greater than the delight you imagine if you hold on to your gift, which is why we often do, whether it be our time or our talent or our treasure. It is a greater delight. It is the delight. If you remember as a child what it was like to know your father delighted in you, if you ever knew that, many of us don't. But your father delights in your gift, whether it's big, small, shape, whatever, just in the gift. We have to ask ourselves, is that at the heart of why I give anything? If I give anything, is, is that how I view it and why I sacrifice? Is it, is it a pursuit of the joy of God? Which may be a new thought for some of you. Did you know this is why God gives to us? Why He con con continues to give to us? God giving to us brings Him joy. If you're a parent, I think you understand this. So in our family, we have Christmas and we have two birthdays really quickly, first week of January. So there's a lot of gift giving. And at Christmas, it was kind of funny. 
uh, found, I don't know if it's a new video, but there was a Saturday Night Live video about a mom and motherhood on Christmas morning. You should search it out and find it. It's hilarious. And it starts off this video, it's like, hey, it's Christmas! And there's kids like, I got a skateboard, I got this, do 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 And she's like, and I got a robe. And you're like, hey, cool, she got a robe. And then it keeps going, and I got this, and I got this. And she's like, and I got a robe. And she keeps going, and I get him. Mom's like, it's a really nice robe and stuff. And it like, keeps going, all she got was a robe, right? And like, that's mom's experience on Christmas. And truly, that's the kind of experience of parents as you get older. You're not getting as many presents And your joy isn't even in the presence anymore. The joy is in seeing your kids delight. It's wonderful. I love seeing the delight of my children. I love being the dad who, you know, after all the presents are unwrapped, you're like, what's that present behind the tree over there, right? They're like, you didn't. My wife's like, you didn't. I'm like, oh, yes, I did, right? It's just joy. How can we get to a place where you realize like, that's how the Lord gives to us? So it reminded me of a story that you may be familiar with. True story. There's a man named Dick Hoyt. And Dick Hoyt is now, I think, a 72-year-old man who continues to run Ironmans in other races. In every race he competes in, he is either pulling, carrying, or pushing his disabled son, Rick, on a boat, on a bike, or in a wheelchair-like running thing. His son, Rick, was born with cerebral palsy, which is a permanent disorder that restricts muscle movement, and occurred because he had a lack of oxygen when he was born. And so the doctors basically said he's going to be kind of a vegetable, in their own words, and he'll be pretty much in a wheelchair his whole life, won't be able to do much, but this did not cause his father Dick to lose heart. He never gave up on his son, and so they're now popularly called Team Hoyt, which you can look up videos on them. It's fascinating. This duo has so far, he's 72, so far completed 1,091 races. Among them are 252 triathlons and 72 marathons. Now, if you're like me, you read that and you're like, I am pathetic. Like, I am horrible. (laughs) I cannot do one of those things by myself, right? It's incredible. But here's the thought. Why not just do it once? Once would have been impressive. I would have been just as impressed. Like, wow. 1,091 times so far. 252 triathlons so far. Why would he do it again and again and again? You know the answer. It brings him joy. To bring his son joy. The sacrifice, which I'm sure there's a lot. The pain, which I'm sure there's a lot, means nothing in comparison to the joy. This is how our Father gives to us in Christ. This is how the heavenly citizen understands their King. Like, our King Jesus didn't just, like, go on the cross and go, like, 
All right, I'm on the throne now. Worship me. I did all the work. All done. No, he says, I'm with you wherever you go. He hasn't stopped. In fact, Hebrews 7 says that he is a permanent priest perpetually interceding for the Father, meaning Jesus is continually praying for us. He is continually walking with us. He is sometimes pushing us, sometimes pulling us, sometimes carrying us, loving us, and giving to us again and again and again and again. If God is that generous to us in Christ, ought we not be as generous? Before his final greeting, Paul makes a promise connected with our generous giving, which is actually connected with our generous compassion. And he says this in verse 19, And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and the glory of In Christ Jesus, to our God and Father, be glory forever and ever. Amen. Well, through the generous, real, tangible, practical gifts of the Philippians, Paul is well supplied. But now he speaks about how God's going to supply them in response to their generosity. He says, God is going to supply every need you have. He does not say He will supply every want you have. Which is important. I think much of our reluctance to share one another's burdens, to give generously to those in need, is because we fear not getting what we want or need if we do. We're anxious. We're worried. Are we going to have enough? Not only did Jesus teach that it was better to give than to receive, He taught that if you try to hold on to your life, Rather than commit to giving it away, you will lose what you already have. In the Sermon on the Mount, he taught that getting what we needed in this kingdom was dependent upon prioritizing the kingdom of God in our lives. He said in Matthew chapter 6, Therefore do not be anxious, because we are. What shall we eat? What shall we drink? What shall we wear? The Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Seek first His kingdom. Not only, but first. It could be rightly said that God supplies those who trust Him with their needs. And how do you know if someone's trusting God with their needs? I think, quite simply, You know someone truly trusts God with every need they have because they obey His Word even when it doesn't make sense. What do I mean? I was reminded in Luke chapter 4, I believe it is, I was doing my devotions through the Gospel and I read, which I hadn't read in a long time, the calling of the first disciples in Luke. It's a little bit different than the other Gospels. Jesus climbs into Peter's boat and pushes it out a little bit, and he teaches from the boat, which he's done before. And he's with Peter and perhaps his brother Andrew in the boat, and he says, okay, now I want you to put your nets out into the deep. And Peter's like, seriously? He says, Master, we, we worked all night, and we didn't catch anything. 
Then he says, but because you said, we will. It didn't make sense. These are expert fishermen. Jesus is the carpenter. They're like, okay, we'll do it. They put it out, and the nets are full, almost breaking. If you believe that God is committed to supplying every need you have, then I believe you'll act upon every word he says. Even if it doesn't make sense. Be generous. Share in the needs and the burdens of others. Ah, I, I don't got time. I don't know if I can do this. Do you trust me, he says? See, when we give to those in need, when we invest in the kingdom, when we support the work of the ministry, Paul says, God is going to supply the needs of yours. And he says, from where they will be supplied according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. See, God promised his reward is not merely material, which is often where we look first. It's spiritual and everlasting. We think most of the problems in this world are caused and solved by material things when in fact most of the problems and the solutions are spiritual. For citizens of heaven, joy, hope, meaning, security, it is not found in the changing rights of our society because they will change. They hope that we truly, desperately need that lasting beyond death is not found in the strength of our economy. It's not found in the unreliable integrity of our leaders. It's not found in the temporary peace our nation may find or even the health our bodies may or may not have. Our hope, our joy, our meaning, our security is found in the unchanging, eternal riches in Christ. That is how the heavenly citizen functions and perceives all things. And Paul concludes his letter with a simple greeting, which again, the kind of thing we would just read over. Greet every saint in, Jesus, in Christ Jesus. The brothers are with me. Greet you. All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. And there's a couple things to acknowledge here. First, Paul greets many brothers and sisters in Christ. The gift, the care that was given was not just from one person. It was from a collective of people, a family of people. God intends for us to care together and give together and go together because nothing great is ever achieved on your own. Nothing. And that's the way God designed it. The second thing to notice is that there isn't a single person that's actually named. Yet there's a lot of people greeted. The only people we know from the Philippian church are Epaphroditus. He delivered the letter. And these two women who are arguing and disagreeing in the church. Other than that, we know no one's name. The name that dominates the final verses of this letter? Jesus. Paul speaks of the riches in Christ Jesus, saints in Christ Jesus, the grace of the Lord Jesus. See, not only is nothing ever achieved on your own that is great, nothing great is ever achieved for our own name. Citizens of heaven are not concerned with their own name. They're not concerned with their own glory, their own position, their own prosperity, but heavenly citizens are concerned with the glory 
of their king. They are servants of the king. In the end, all the lessons of Philippians can really be summarized in one sentence of what it means to be a citizen. The citizen of heaven finds their supreme joy, their supreme meaning in service to others because of Jesus, like Jesus, for the glory of Jesus. Jesus lived a humble, faithful, sinless life, meaning He lived the perfect life. He lived the meaningful life. He lived the joyful life. And what does He teach? You want to be great? Be a servant. Whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Why? Even as the Son of Man who came not to be served, but to serve and give His life as a ransom for many. As people continue, and they will, to fight for their own rights, their own voice, or their own way. Let us be committed to fighting for the name and the glory of Jesus Christ. And let us also know that that is actually accomplished less by fighting and more by showing compassion, by sharing burdens, and even giving of all that we have to bless others, our family, our friends, even our enemies. Because that is how God in Christ loved us and continues to love us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we praise you for your incredibly radical patience and love towards us. Father, I pray that we will learn to delight in your delight. I pray, Lord, that you will show us how much Jesus has taken on our troubles, that we might share the troubles of others, that we might, through compassionate hearts given to us by Christ, may be generous with all that we have been given. And I pray when all is said and done, Lord, we will be governed not by our citizenship on earth, but we will be governed supremely by our heavenly citizenship. We will see all things through the eternal perspective and we will long for your return, Jesus. It's in your name we pray. Amen. As we continue to worship this morning, we will come to the table. If you are not a Christian, this experience is not for you because this is a proclamation, in many ways a confession of belief. It is declaring that Jesus Christ died the death I deserve and lived the life I should have. And He gave that to me that I might be reconciled to my Father. You don't believe that. We desire for you to believe that because it is the very truth of God. It is the only hope in this world, in this life and the next. So I compel you to confess. I compel you to believe that Jesus died and rose again. If you are a Christian, it reminds you of some basic things you should never forget. One, you have a new life. The old is gone, the new has come. Two, you have a renewed life, which means we come each week reminding ourselves we are redeemed works in progress. We ain't finished yet. Jesus hasn't returned, and we haven't returned to him, so he still has work to do in us. 
And so we come regularly to the table, reminding ourselves that we need forgiveness, we need renewal, confessing, if you will, our weakness and our hope in Christ. It also, third thing, tells us we have a shared life. We're not doing this alone, not designed to do this alone, shouldn't do this alone. As you come, notice who comes with you. We share in this. And the fourth thing, this is pointing to us an eternal kingdom is yet to come. And what we do now does follow us into eternity. Even the relationships we're building now, we will know many people, will there be many Christians in heaven, but we will know each other. And that is beautiful and glorious. Let's stand and sing to our King, delighting in His return.